Luke chapter 12. Continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. What a blessing it is to gather around God's Word and to teach and to learn, to learn the truth that uh, He gives to us there. Truth not of men, but of God. Luke 12, verse 35. I'm on page 1618 if you're using the Pew Bible. God's Word given to us for our good. Let's give our attention to it. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maidservants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. I know this from spending some time in the fast food industry. If there's not a good manager around, uh, there are a couple of things that happen when the owner is gone. The quality of the work seems to subside, and employees all of a sudden feel the freedom to start helping themselves to the food that's in the back. Constant problem, something that uh, restaurant owners, I'm sure, have to worry about. They're probably seeking uh, higher levels of supervision now with all of the technology that's available to you. And most of them probably are watching on their phones as, uh, as they leave if they can't trust the manager. But a faithful and honest manager is, is really important in that whole enterprise. It's invaluable to have someone that you trust implicitly and that you know that he or she will make sure that the business continues to go uh, in the way that you would run it, even if you were there. Jesus is not a restaurant owner, of course, but his kingdom is like a large household. And he has told us, his servants, that he needs to be gone for a little while. But he's also told us that he will return. 
The question is, how will we be acting when he is gone to his faraway land? The purpose of tonight's text is simple. We are to focus on doing what Jesus has given us to do. The things that God has called us to do, that is what we are to do while Jesus is away. We are to live and act just as if Jesus is returning today. We are not to slack off or cheat or steal from him, but are to go about doing his business and to keep watch and to be ready. In short, we are to live and act as if Jesus' return is close by and it is coming soon. We have been seeing that Jesus has been given us, giving us the uh, teaching on the importance of the eternal perspective. And we've seen it applied to finances. We've seen it applied to possessions. Uh, we've seen it applied to fear. We've seen it applied to stress and to worry. And we may think that uh, Jesus has kind of moved on from that, from that set of teachings. But actually, there is still an eternal perspective here that's hanging over Luke chapter 12. And Jesus is applying it here. The eternal perspective is what we need to apply to our spiritual diligence, remaining vigilant in all of the things that we do for God and his glory. In other words, we cannot allow ourselves to think that because Jesus is gone, because he's in heaven, that we can take any breaks from the life to which God calls us. This does not mean that there is no time for rest. This does not mean that there is, any, and that there is no time for uh, refreshment. But what it does mean is that there are never any breaks from being a Christian. The life of faith and trusting Jesus is an essential and is a constant part of being in Christ. And that never goes away. Furthermore, we are always called to be diligent in seeking new ways of how to serve and be obedient to God. There, there will never come a day, uh, sadly, you can see sometimes uh, parents do this, sometimes uh, even Christian communities do things like this, where they'll say, okay, go ahead and rebel a little bit. Go ahead and break some rules. Put away all the things you've learned and uh, go and live a little bit. Go have fun. As I said, there are Christian communities that, that will try this and send their children away and and say, go and give the world a try, and uh, if that's not really for you, then you can come back to us and we'll reacclimate you to our communities. But the message of this passage, the overarching message of Scripture, of course, is that to follow Jesus on the way is to follow him all of the time, and to understand that everything we do has eternal implications. And we need to live out his call upon our lives. And when we consider eternity in light of this life, this life will start to look much shorter. This life will start to look like it's, it's much more doable to serve God each and every day of your life when you consider it in light of eternity. And that's why the eternal perspective, as it connects to our, to our spiritual diligence, is so important. And an eternal perspective on, on diligence spiritually is also important because it's the bedrock for all of the other things that we've been talking about. Money, possessions, the worries of life, all of these things demand our attention. They tend to take up the space of our mind. And we won't have the energy or the time or the ability to think about the kingdom. And Jesus has just told us that it is the kingdom which we are to treasure. So even when we don't feel like making that our focus, we need to remember that Jesus has commanded it of us. That Jesus has commanded us to remain diligent in that, uh, 
pursuit. We also must remember that when God commands something of us, when Jesus gives commands in his word, we can rest assured in knowing that God does not command things for which he will not also provide the help to obey. In other words, if God commands something, he will provide help to obey. For the Spirit can enliven those scriptures to us and give us new life in order to live according to what God commands. Our passage begins, it says, be dressed ready for service. Other translations say, be ready for action, or in other words, be ready to go. Have your running shoes on. If a parent comes into the living room at 8 o'clock a.m., and uh, usually they leave to go, drop, uh, to go drop the child off at school at 8.05, and the child is sitting there in his pajama pants and socks, what's she going to say? She's going to say, go and put your jeans and your shoes on. So we understand what Jesus is saying. Be dressed, ready, to act, ready for action. Be dressed and be ready to go. But what does this image come from? It comes, it's actually a direct quote from Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where Israel was first instructed about the Passover. This phrase literally means, gird up your loins. God wanted Israel to be ready to leave and to run out of Egypt at the Passover. He wanted them to be ready to leave that night. In other words, Passover was not to be a celebration banquet. It couldn't be something that you'd sit down and you kind of relax and you think you're going to be there for a long time because their redemption had not yet taken place. God says, I need you to be ready to go. Have your loins girded up. Have the staff ready at your side for soon you will be on your way out of Egypt. And that is the mentality that Jesus wants us to adopt as the church in the world. We live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We are called to understand that and we are called to act accordingly. We're called to have that as our mindset. We are strangers and we are aliens in this world. The age of this world, this world system, the way that it thinks, that is not our home. So we are exiles awaiting final redemption. The time for triumphal celebration has not yet arrived. But just as it did for Israel and Egypt, we know that redemption will come. Jesus has spent time in the recent passages in the Gospel of Luke telling us that treasure and riches and blessing, all of these await us. And it's good for us to keep those in our mind. Jesus says, in fact, it's essential for you to remember that treasure and blessing awaits you. Because of what Christ has done. It's providential that this passage occurs tonight because there's a striking parallel to the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated this morning. The Lord's table, of course, in the New Testament is in many ways a fulfillment of the Passover meal. And we see in it many of the same themes. We are not told to eat with a staff in our hands or with our Nikes on, but we get small little tokens of God's grace and his mercy because it is merely a foretaste of coming glory. It is not yet the marriage feast of the Lamb. It is not the celebration banquet of many hours and relaxing and reclining. It's a foretaste of the marriage feast of the land because even while we eat, what do we remain? We remain strangers and exiles on the earth, awaiting our final home until our king returns. For that return, we are to be ready. We are to be dressed for action. We are to be girded up. 
But Jesus also says that we are to be like servants who, are, who have stayed in their master's house while their master is gone. They are to go about doing what the master have, has told them to do. They are to be waiting. So we're, be, we're supposed to be ready to go, but then we're supposed to be waiting. Ready for action, but waiting on the Lord. And that captures a big part of the Christian life. There's an urgency that's attached to our vigilance. The return of your king is upon us. It is coming soon, and you need to know that and think about that, but you need to be patient in waiting on the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 34 says this, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Psalm 73, the psalmist is, is having trouble uh, trying to, to put the pieces together in, in the world. as The wicked are prospering, and he feels as though he's a fairly righteous man, and nothing's going right for him. And so he's trying to put this together. He says, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But then I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned. Their end. You see, an eternal perspective for the psalmist changes the way that he sees and views this life. Vindication, salvation, rest, blessing, treasure. At many times in this life, it's going to seem like the farthest thing from your present reality. And that has been the way for, for God's people since the beginning. That is the way of faith. We see it. People like Abraham and all of the heroes of the Old Testament the beginning of this gospel, we've seen it as well. And Simeon and Anna, these were the ones who rejoiced to see the face of Jesus when Jesus was at the temple and being, and being dedicated. Simeon and Anna are described as waiting, which is the same verb that Jesus uses here in the parable for the servants. They are waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the redemption of Jerusalem. Just like Simeon and Anna, because of what Jesus says here, connecting it, the same word usage. Just like Simeon and Anna, we are called to wait for redemption, for the redemption of God's people. Simeon and Anna rejoiced to see and to hold their Savior. And in that moment, that's a foretaste of what happens to God's people when we see our Savior. That's what, that's what God's faithful will do when Jesus comes again. They will rejoice to see him, just like Simeon and Anna, who were awaiting the consolation and the redemption. And a professor in seminary whom I uh, loved dearly was just a wonderfully humble man and taught me so much about how to be a Christian first and, and then a minister second. He had this phrase that he would say, and he would say, when Jesus comes tomorrow, when Jesus comes tomorrow, the first time I heard him say that, I said, that's peculiar. Why is he saying that? But he said it multiple times, when Jesus comes tomorrow. It's such a beautiful way of speaking because as uh, we saw in recent passages, we can be so consumed with our worries about tomorrow. But if rather than worrying about tomorrow, we talk about it as the day that Jesus returns, the worries of tomorrow will fade away if we talk like Jesus is coming tomorrow. And so I thought about that this week, and, and I came up with this. And this is perhaps a summary of the mindset that Jesus is teaching us here. We need to think like Jesus is coming tomorrow. We need to live like he is coming today. And we need, we need to act 
like he is coming now. When we think like he is coming tomorrow, we allow the worries of tomorrow to fade away. Tomorrow belongs to the Lord. Tomorrow belongs to Jesus. It is Christ's. It is not ours. When we live like he is coming today, we allow the bigger things of our lives, the convictions of our lives, to be shaped by giving our lives back to God in joy-filled worship. So what we do, where we live, with whom we associate, how we spend our time and resources, all of these decisions are to be made on this bigger conviction that it's all for the glory of God, and everything that we do is temporary. And this world will not last forever. And when we act like he is coming now, this gets down to the nitty-gritty of our lives. We should say that we would never want to do anything that we would not want to be doing at the moment Jesus returns. Jonathan Edwards made this type of thinking famous. I'll share with you this resolution that he made, and it may sound a bit intense for us, but I'll explain it a little bit. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. Resolved. In other words, I've decided to do this. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Perhaps you hear that and you think, well, if I had that kind of mindset, I would feel the freedom to do nothing except praying. All I I would feel the freedom to do would be to lock myself in my closet and pray. I could not enjoy life, but that's the wrong way to look at it. See, God is the Lord of all. He's created all things. He's created this world so that we would be involved in serving him and glorifying him in it. He created the fields that we would tend them. He created industry that we would develop it. He created goods and services that the human race might be cared for, provided for. When Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow, he said that he would plant a tree today. Not because he believed that that tree would make it to the new heavens and new new earth necessarily, but because he knew that God had blessed this world and that he had endowed honor and dignity and took delight when his people took joy in serving him in it and being part of God's world. So when we take a look at your life and you try to apply these principles, don't feel as though Christ is commanding you to live as a monk shut up in your prayer closet. Prayer is an essential part of our lives, but God creates us to have consistency in head, heart, and hands. We need to rest in knowing that he blesses all kinds of work and service. We cannot be frantic in thinking that many of the things that we do are not spiritual, right? Something spiritual, something is found to be spiritual in the manner that we do it. You can offer your body as a living sacrifice unto God in all the things that you do. He asks us to make him Lord of all areas of our lives. So don't be discouraged in thinking that your life is less Christian because you're not a missionary or because you're not a monk. Charles Spurgeon said, always act just as you would wish to be acting if he were to come now. Be confident in what God calls you to do. Tightening a plumbing pipe to the glory of God, milking a cow, to the glory of God, take courage, fearlessly serve Christ. Act like he is coming now, knowing that he has bestowed dignity and honor on the milkmaid, on the minister, and the king. But in living that way, Jesus tells us that our preparedness for him does not mean that we will know when he is coming. Just the opposite, in fact. And Jesus says that we are to remain diligent in our spiritual pursuit 
in making ourselves ready for him because we do not know and we will not know when it is going to happen. It's funny, no matter how clearly this is shown in Scripture, and no matter how clearly this is opened up in Scripture, people still engage in this kind of guessing, don't they? Trying to assert and tell people when Jesus will come back. And inevitably, no matter what kind of credentials the person has that has this, made this teaching famous, people will follow that person. They will latch on to any teaching that will claim to know when the second coming is going to happen. Why, why is that? Why do we want to know? Why is there something in our hearts that is so drawn to thinking that someone has this new knowledge that they know now when Jesus is going to return? Because we want to know in order to, uh, to arrange our lives around that knowledge. And it's a, it's a sinful instinct, isn't it? If I know that I'm going to live until I'm 82, guaranteed, then I could live however I wanted. I could maybe... Uh, go off, live however I wanted, maybe get baptized at age 81, spend six months in prayer, pray really hard for those last six months, give all of my money away, and waltz peacefully into the kingdom of God. When kings like Constantine converted to Christianity, they would often delay baptism until their deathbed so that they could rule as kings without the the weight or the burden of serving their Lord Jesus Christ. And they thought that they could be so in control of their lives that they would be able to know and that that they'd be able to orchestrate when it was they were going to die. And they said, that is when, that is when I will get baptized. And God, of course, will not deny grace. But this is exactly what Jesus teaches us not to do in this parable. Verse 39, understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So how do we do that? We think like he is coming tomorrow. We live like he is coming today. We act like he is coming now. He is coming again. Your king is coming. Serve him and go about his business until he comes. And the fascinating part, of course, is the wonder of the gospel. Look at what happens inside of this parable. Verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He, that is the master, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them, the servants, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. When the master returns, there's this fascinating, astonishing reversal of roles. The servants have been busy about his work, making sure that they're making themselves ready for his return. But when he returns, what does he do? He grabs an apron, he fires on the stove, he sets the table, and he has his servants sit down. That is the gospel, isn't it? The master comes, and he serves them. We are not the ones who cook the meal. We are not the ones who create the food and the nourishment for the kingdom of God. When our Lord and our King returns, He will take us to the wedding banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb. He will give us rich food and wine. He will serve us with the blessings of His eternal kingdom. He came not to be served. He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Peter gets worried about this parable, as he is often worried and uh, asking questions. So he speaks up, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? In other words, people, uh, Peter's thinking, when the people disperse and it's just the 12 of us with Jesus, then uh, he's going to tell us 
when it is that all this stuff will come. Peter has the same instinct as us, doesn't he? he? He's got this sinful instinct that wants to know when it's going to happen so that he can order his life, order all of the things around that specific time. And Jesus' answer is basically this. No, Peter, it's not given to you to know these things. For just as I call my servants to make themselves ready for my return, so I call those who are especially called to lead and feed my people to serve faithfully. So Jesus speaks of these servants in the second part that he calls managers in the master's house, and they're in charge of the rest of the servants. He's giving an answer to Peter here. And if you go and and you read in the New Testament, um, the church is referred to as the, the household of God. The apostles are referred to as stewards of God's gospel and his word. And so Jesus expands this parable as he's giving Peter an answer to talk about the responsibility that the apostles will have as those who will establish the church of Jesus. They are these managers in the household of God. And with the death of the last apostle, this responsibility was handed down. It was handed down to the pastors and the elders of the church. And that they are those who hold this responsibility now as the managers in God's house. And what is it that they're called to do? In other words, what does Jesus say that apostles and pastors and elders of the church need to be doing in order to manage God's household well? Verse 42 gives the answer. They are to feed the rest of the servants. They are to make sure that the servants in the house are going to be fed. Later on, when Jesus be betrayed and handed over to be crucified, in the hour of trial, Peter will deny him, run from him, um, betray him. Thankfully for Peter, for all of us, a picture of grace, a picture of mercy, Jesus forgives him. And what does he say when they're having breakfast uh, together as, as Jesus restores him? It's, he asks Peter if he loves him. Peter says, you know I love you. And... Um, and, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The household of God is to live on the word of God. And these are those who have been placed to make sure that that is happening, the pastors and the elders. Je- Notice how Jesus describes the ministerial duty. It's not one of great pomp and circumstance. It's not one of great show. It's not flashy. It doesn't have the position of celebrity. It is simply to set healthy and balanced meals before the people of God so that they may eat. This is the work of those who rule and govern in the church, to see that the people of God would be fed with the word of God. It must be the word of God that is our meal, that is the food that we eat. This is the healthy and balanced diet of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. It is being shown the rhythms of guilt and grace and gratitude for the glory of God. It is being prepared to die well, to leave this world saying to God, your steadfast love is better than life. It's not to predict the future like so many do today or to place a burden on God's people of the law that is greater than they can bear. It's to share the gospel and to open up the treasures of God's word. It is to show that salvation is found in Christ through faith and that the spirit of holiness allows us to seek new obedience and graces each day that we live. It's especially, as we see, not to be something that is to be exploited for worldly pleasure, 
Perhaps a manager thinks that his master is far away from returning. And if you're paying attention to the context, and if you remember what Jesus has taught us in chapter 12 up to this point, you see that Jesus describes a manager who reflects in many ways the mentality of the rich fool, doesn't he? And so he's saying that there will be those, perhaps, who live and who act as managers in the household of God, who live like this, I will eat and drink and get drunk. We might call this rich fool ministry. And Jesus says that these are the kinds of leaders who will get the harshest judgment of all. If you exploit the ministry of the word, the ministry of God's people, in, uh, in order for earthly and worldly gain, if you place burdens on God's people that they cannot bear, if you engage in irresponsible opening up of the text of Scripture, you will receive the harshest judgment of all. And rest of the, the rest of the servants... Jesus says they will be judged in a manner fitting to how much they knew on earth. So that's not the managers, but that is the rest of the servants that Jesus is talking about in the end. Those who knew the truth, who heard it, but who ignored it, they will be judged and punished severely. Those who did not know, but still lived sinfully, will receive a lighter judgment. So Jesus is not talking of rewards here. He's talking of punishment. In the context of this story, at least, the rewards are all the same. The reward is sitting at the banqueting table when the master comes home and he serves you and he feeds you. But those who exploit the ministry for their own gain, Jesus likens the judgment they will receive to being cut in pieces because it's a direct disobeying of what Jesus says serving those in his house is like. It's setting healthy and balanced meals in front of them. So to conclude, we must focus on doing what has been given to us. No matter what our place is, no matter what our vocation or calling, we are to think like Jesus is coming tomorrow so that we might give all to him. We are to live like he is coming today. We are to act like he is coming now. Those who are given the task of managing, of declaring the word of God, they are to set healthy meals of the gospel of Jesus Christ before God's people. And those who receive it are to treasure it in their hearts as words that are trustworthy and faithful and true. Foolproof. We want to rest in knowing the future, but if we live in light of the only event that we know is guaranteed to happen in the future, the coming of Jesus, the return of our King, then God will find us ready. So live in light of that. And whether we live to see our king's return or our mortal life runs its course before that happens, at either moment, the result is the same. We meet our maker, and this life will forever be gone. Think like he's coming tomorrow. Live like he's coming today. Act like he's coming now. And do all of that, walking by faith in the Son of God, knowing that in Christ you were washed, you were made new, and that the Spirit abides with you to give you power to obey the commands of God with sincerity of heart. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and praise. Illumine these scriptures to us by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We finish singing number 400.